Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from surviving being sunk by the Japanese, through a deadly accident and growing up in occupied Holland, to an Irish volunteer and dodging the Blitz to serve tea and biscuits. We begin this week with a story from Paul Craven. Dear Al and James, Of my grandfathers, I don't know much about the war service of my maternal one, William T. Robinson, because he died when I was a baby. All I know is he was drafted and served in the Royal Pioneer Corps. He was badly wounded fighting in North Africa in 1942. My mum says he was given a medical discharge, came home with what she called a large dent in his temple and shrapnel in his brain. She says he was never the same again. I know more about my paternal grandfather, George A. Craven, because he lived until I was in my thirties. He wouldn't talk about it much. In my opinion, he had PTSD. He suffered from dreadful night terrors, and I believe he also suffered from survivor's guilt. George was born in London's East End on the 11th of January 1912. Growing up, he saw many horribly maimed First World War veterans, infantrymen who'd lost limbs on the Western Front. With this in mind, he told me he volunteered as an HO, hostilities only, recruit in the Royal Navy in September 1939. His theory was that sailors were more likely to be killed outright. He didn't like the prospect of having to live like those poor First World War soldiers he'd known as a boy. At the time, he'd been married to my nan for seven years and they had two sons, my uncle Brian and my dad. When he volunteered, the Navy was short of cooks and his intake were designated to be trained as such. However, on discovering what he did for a living, they decided he'd be better suited as a stoker. There's a photo of his intake where all the others are wearing cook's rig, but George wears a stoker's uniform. 
On completion of training, George joined the destroyer HMS Electra and remained with her until she was sunk by the Japanese in February 1942. HMS Electra had quite an eventful war. He told me they were first on the scene after HMS Hood was sunk. He said they prepared huge urns of kai and piles of sandwiches for all the men they thought they'd find. But they could only find three. George had an HMS Hood cap tally he picked out of the water. His ship did convoy escort duty to Archangel and was then sent to the Far East. It was here that the events that scarred him, both physically and mentally, happened. His ship was present when HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse were sunk. Electra managed to rescue over 500 survivors, but he was haunted by witnessing the loss of so many lives. The thing that upset him the most was the sound of the men below decks, locked behind bulkhead doors, singing as they drowned. Some nine weeks later, at the Battle of the Java Sea, his own ship was sunk by the Japanese. On the 27th of February 1942, George, at his action station in the engine room, was blown up by a shell. Blinded and burnt, his shipmates managed to carry him to a lifeboat. Later that night, he and about 50 of his shipmates were picked up by a US Navy submarine. My nan received a telegram from the Navy informing her that her husband's ship had been lost. Family legend recalls Uncle Brian, who was nine at the time, saying, Don't worry, Mum. Dad's a good swimmer. He's not dead. He wasn't dead. He was in hospital, firstly in the Dutch East Indies and then Australia. He was among the first to undergo pioneering eye surgery to stitch both his retinas, which had been detached by the blast from the explosion in the engine room, back onto his eyes. He was also given penicillin to treat his infected wounds, which, he told me, saved his life, but also made all his teeth fall out. He arrived home safe several months later. Family legend recalls my nan fainted when she saw him. The Navy didn't discharge him, however. He was posted to a shore establishment in Portsmouth, where he printed charts for the rest of the war. That was from Paul Craven. Thank you, Paul. Our next story comes from Graham Topham. My family experiences in World War II are fascinating to me, even if they may not be very remarkable in general. My grandfather served in the Royal Signals, attached to the 9th Medium Regiment Royal Artillery, and was in Western Europe from July 1944 until the end of the war. My nan had many uncles in the Royal Marines who served in both wars. One of these, Joseph Tilsley, was a Royal Marine Light Infantry Officer on HMS Sumatra in 1944. Sumatra was a requisitioned Dutch ship and was scuttled off the coast of Normandy on the 9th of June as part of a gooseberry pier to protect one of the Mulberry harbours for Operation Overlord. We were told that despite orders for all ship's items to remain on board, Uncle Joe had the men of his unit fill their pockets and packs with cutlery and crockery and then march them back to his house to deposit their spoils as a gift to his wife. My nan's brother, John Alfred Ronald Ware, was a sergeant pilot in the RAF Volunteer Reserve. In 1943, Ronnie was training in Beaufort Bombers with 5 Operational Training Unit at RAF Long Kesh in Northern Ireland. On the 11th of March, Ronnie was the pilot of Beaufort AW275 as it took off on a navigation and bombing range exercise. Plane was last spotted near Stornoway in Scotland, but all contact was lost after 1338 when the plane's signal faded. Beaufort AW275 was presumed missing at sea. 
I have read that Beauforts were prone to engine failure. A supposed mechanical failure killed Ronnie and the rest of his crew right at the end of their training. Close to two years of training and all that money, time and equipment invested in them, all their promise and potential, ended by a training accident. According to my nan, he was clever and popular and had a bright future ahead of him. My great-grandmother never accepted he was dead and always left a light on in the house in case he ever made it home at night. I wonder how many soldiers, sailors and aircrew were killed in training and through accidents before they even got near to the front lines. That was from Graham Topham. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The next story this week comes from David Turner. My mum's family owned a farm just outside Helmand, about seven miles east of Eindhoven and 23 miles from the border with Germany. Mum, Johanna van der Hulst, or Annie, was born in 1933. She was the eighth of 11 surviving children and was seven when the Germans invaded. These are her memories. I remember the day very well. We stood in silence watching the German army come over the dike and past our farmhouse, vehicle after vehicle. There was no resistance. Nobody waved or got excited. Before the occupation, we had Dutch soldiers staying at our house. Some we stayed friends with long after the war, but one of them, called Engel, was Jewish, and we never heard from him again. Our bikes were taken by the Germans, so we had to walk to school every day, four kilometres each way. Sometimes we managed to hitch a lift on one of the barges or ships when there was one in the lock. Our radio had to be taken into the council office as we weren't allowed to listen to the BBC, so there was no information of what was going on in the world. My father scratched his name on the radio before handing it in, though, and we got it back after the war. As time went on, the Germans helped themselves to whatever they wanted. Our front garden was full of snowdrops in January. They just pulled out handfuls of them. My mother and grandmother's jewellery had to be buried in the back garden and hidden by growing vegetables or maize on top of it. One day a German soldier called. We had animals on the farm and he told one of my brothers to fetch a horse out of the field as he wanted it to transport some weapons. My brother did as commanded and went to the large meadow while the soldier stayed behind. This horse was friendly so my brother picked up a stick and used it to keep shooing the horse every time it came near. In the end, he told the soldier he couldn't catch it, and luckily that seemed to satisfy him. Coupons were needed to buy certain items, and farm produce was under strict control. For example, sketches were made of our cows to stop us selling them without permission. But of course, we'd already hidden the best one in the forest. Also, cheesemaking was not allowed, but my mother, originally from Edam, always made lovely cheese and butter on the farm. One day, an official came to check up on us and went all through the house. While he was outside, my elder sister took the cheeses from the cellar and put them in the rainwater drum to be fished out again when the coast was clear. It was a hard four years. 
In March 1944, my father passed away, so my mother was left with a big farm, 11 children, the youngest was only two years old, a war going on, and not knowing if any of her sons would be taken to Germany to work in the factories. We also saw and heard V1s in the sky, although I really wasn't sure what they were. There goes another one to London, we'd say, when they went over. But we soon got scared when we were told what happened if the engine stopped. On June the 6th, 1944, news somehow filtered through that the Allies had landed in Normandy. There was great excitement, but it could not be shown. By September, they started coming over the Belgian border, but having no radio, no one really knew what was happening. There was a lot of German activity, and it was very frightening as children, but we were sent to school as usual with our ID cards around our neck. Around the 20th of September, we heard the British were near, maybe even just a few villages away. That was a really nervous time, as no one knew what was going to happen, so we prepared our large cellar with blankets, food and mattresses. It soon became apparent that the British had arrived in nearby woods. The Germans were positioned on the far bank of the canal, at a lock 200 metres away, and directly opposite a neighbour's house. It was a sunny afternoon when the shooting started. We were sent into the cellar and told to be quiet. My eldest brothers were hiding in one of the barns where they could better see what was going on. Soon they saw scout cars coming down the lane alongside our farm, towards the canal. Everyone was told to stay in the cellar, as there was a lot of shooting. A few hours later, when the shooting stopped, my brothers went to see what had happened. They looked across the canal to our neighbours and saw them in an upstairs window, pointing towards the road used by the British, and realised there was something in the ditch. Although the Germans were still on the other side of the canal, two of my brothers crawled to the muddy ditch and discovered one of the scout cars upside down. Inside they found the driver was conscious, but the other soldier wasn't. We think he was killed in the crash. My brothers couldn't open the hatch, but, with their little English, the driver made them understand how to get it open, and he was able to get out of the vehicle. My brothers were risking their lives with the Germans so close. It was a matter of crawling back to one of the farms, where the driver was given food and drink and changed into farm overalls. Somehow, he got back to the British lines, but we never heard from him again. The family realised it was too dangerous to stay at the farm, and it was decided we all had to leave, we packed a few belongings and off we went, leaving all the pigs, hens and cows. Then we realised my mother had wandered off and taken my two-year-old brother. She was not in a good state of mind, having had to deal with so much, and didn't know where she was or what she was doing. We went after her into the woods and eventually caught her up. We were close to a farmhouse where we knew the family, and they insisted we stay with them. Straw was put down on the stone floor for us, and we stayed there for four or five nights. When it was thought to be safe, we returned home. The cows were lying dead in the meadow, and because of the heat, looked like massive balloons. The Germans had gone, so we were effectively liberated, but there wasn't any celebrating. The family just got on with disposing of the dead livestock and getting the farm back up and running. We knew that the Germans had retreated over the Rhine and heard that many people there were starving in the north, even eating flower bulbs to stay alive. There was nothing we could do to help as we were not allowed to cross the big rivers to get to the north and couldn't send food. I had a lot of uncles and aunts there, but amazingly, they survived. When the war ended in May, there were great celebrations in the towns, but I only remember farm life carrying on as normal. Soon after that, an English lady arrived with her brother. She was the widow of the soldier, who died when the scout car crashed, 
and wanted to see where she'd lost her husband and the family who'd tried to save him. He's buried in the war cemetery in Mielo. That was the start of a friendship between our families that has lasted ever since, and she's the reason I came to England over 60 years ago, where I met my husband and settled down. Mum had her 90th birthday not so long ago, and that lady's two granddaughters were at the party. Thank you so much to David Turner for sharing that story. Our next story is from Paul Porter. I wanted to share the story of my maternal grandfather, Sergeant Robert James Daly of the Royal Ulster Rifles. Born in Donegal at the outbreak of war, he was serving in the reasonably new Irish army. He and some comrades deserted, about 5,000 Irish servicemen did the same, and joined the Royal Ulster Rifles in Belfast in September 1939. As a trained soldier, he was immediately sent over to Belgium in the BEF and was in Europe all through the German invasion of May 1940, surviving being evacuated from Dunkirk. As this was going on, his wife, my grandmother, with three children and one on the way, was forced to leave Galway by the IRA. She ended up moving to Islington, just in time for the Blitz. My mum and uncle were evacuated to Somerset and Wales respectively, having very different experiences. My mum was eventually surrounded by American troops and treated very kindly, while my uncle had a tortured time on a Welsh farm. My granddad went ashore on D-Day and fought his way through Normandy, Falaise and up through Belgium and Holland and into Germany. He survived, but spoke little of the war. He suffered many nightmares over the years. Before he died, he told me of the terrible loss of friends alongside him in combat the horror of fighting boys in German uniforms who had had no training but still a lethal tendency to surrender and then attack. He saw concentration camps and other horrors and told me there is nothing glorious in war. I find it hard to imagine the bravery and courage of this generation and always imagine how I would be in their position. True heroes. His greatest joy was to have his family around him and I remember him as a softly spoken man, always with a smile and a joke for his grandchildren. He was a great granddad. And that came from Paul Porter. Our next story comes from Nigel Hammersley. My grandfather, Reverend Hubert Treacher, was head of the Church Army during the war, based near Euston Station in London. The Church Army was an organisation similar to the Salvation Army and were donated trucks by churches in the USA, which they converted into mobile canteens for the emergency workers during the Blitz. The trucks were left-hand drive, and this gave the drivers an advantage, as by removing the driver's door, it gave a clear view of the curb, even with blackout conditions. Granny claimed she knew the streets of London better than any cab driver. I once asked her how she knew where to go to dispense tea and rock cakes to the firefighters while the raids were still in progress. Her reply was... We went to the roof of our building, looked around to see which part of London was ablaze, and then drove towards the flames. Keep up the good work, Alan James. Regards, Nigel Hammersley. Thank you, Nigel. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to we have ways podcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the family stories tab a reminder 
That's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>